This week on Trek, Mary Kill, Romulans, cloaks, kisses. Next. That's a Klingon ship. Your ship is surrounded, Captain. You board this ship, I'll blow it up. I must see your authorization. Over there. Accept what is happening between us. I cannot allow the captain to be further destroyed. I say now that Captain Kirk ordered the Enterprise across the neutral zone on his own initiative and his craving for glory. That's a lie! He is not sane. You lie! I kill you! You will take a small band of Romulans aboard the Enterprise as its commander. By your own standards of normality, this man is not fully competent. No, not now. The doctor has now confirmed your testimony. Instinctively used the Vulcan death grip. And your instincts are still good. The captain is dead. Trek, Mary, kill. Hi, I'm Brian. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Ryan. Welcome to Trek, Mary, Kill, a Star Trek podcast now using Klingon design. Joining us this week is a pair of special guests, Mark Farinas and Ryan Thomas Riddle, who host Shipful of Jerks, a podcast that explores science fiction and pop culture with what I'd say is an emphasis on Star Trek. That's how they got on my radar. Uh, Mark is a writer artist who has also created the Star Trek webcomic, and Ryan is a screenwriter and an award-winning journalist. So this is a class elevation for me. Thank you, both of you. Mark and Ryan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Glad, glad to be here, Brian. You elevate us just by being with us. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. Mark, what I really like about the Star Trek webcomic is when... Did you guys see the Barbie movie? Not yet. Yes. Uh, okay. Well, I I, no, Ryan hasn't seen it yet. <laughs> okay, but like when I think of comics, I think of your art style. Like that style is for whatever reason. I was born in 1981. I'm not like old, but for whatever reason, like super old. But like for whatever reason that... Um, that type of art for comics is what's always stuck in my head and always associated with it. And the look you do, it's like, it's so great uh, that it just, it's really fantastic. Star Trek fans are no, you should go check out his web comic. It's fantastic. At trekcomic.com. Ryan, uh, what can I say? You are the, you are the kindest, uh, most inquisitive Star Trek fan I can think of hearing for a long time. You guys are not like yin and yang, but it's like you are very much more empathetic and very open about Star Trek, I guess, in a way that's great. I said before we started recording, I'm like, you guys are way more fair to it than I ever would be. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, pre- I appreciate that. I try to understand that this is not just a, a, a thing that we're consuming, but it is also... A, a, a product of labor of many different people that go into it and that there are all these steps in between creating it to putting it out there where everything can possibly go wrong that goes wrong. No one goes out, sets out to make a bad TV show or a bad uh, movie. Uh, you know, it's it things happen and you have to dance with it. So I try to be understanding of what goes on behind the scenes for it. I think that's what excited me about doing Trek, Mary kill is that star Trek tracks with the history of television very nicely, obviously yeah. from its inception. And it was why I struggled initially to add the animated shows into the fold, because there's something about people getting together 
and for six to eight days shooting something live action and just trying to make it work that animation is able to elide a little bit. They have their own limitations, obviously, and time constraints too. But there's some sort of alchemy of, of people getting together and ma- doing make-believe that uh, Star Trek, I feel like, really captures. Well, with the animated series, they, they didn't really have anybody directing them. So <laughs> they're just wooden and really not acting. And that's the problem with that show, mostly. I mean, you could, you could try to... Uh, reanimate it with CG and stuff like that, as some people have tried, and, and it just really wouldn't work because the the acting is flat. Yeah, I mean, you had Shatner recording it in his dressing rooms while he was on the road doing all these plays. You know, it wasn't like they were like, yeah, <laughs> right. And then, but then compare that to Lower Decks and Prodigy, which are very polished. That was why what drew me to really want to do the show. That's why you have like the Shatner and all this other stuff, but. One thing I really want to call attention to before we get into the episode is uh, Yeoman's work, both of you, for keeping in mind this idea of Kirk Drift in in the popular consciousness, especially with Star Trek fans of a certain age, I would say, you know, under 40s especially, but not exclusively, as J.J. Abrams will show you, uh, that there's this idea that Captain Kirk is just a hoe. And it's the Rick Berman (laughs) idea of he's got a phaser in one hand and a woman in the other. And that's it. And it's like he's just white privileging his way through everything and everyone's helping him, you know, put his boots on and get through the day. And he failed upwards. And I don't know you guys always seem to call that out or when it's there. And I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Well, if, if anyone is uh, white privileging their way through the galaxy, I would say that's Captain Picard. He's very much an imperialist <laughs> sort of like chateau wine drinking elitist. So, I mean. <laughs> He, he has farm labor, for goodness sake, in a society with no money. So uh, <laughs> let, let's think about that for a minute. <laughs> Ryan and I disagree on this, but um, I do think Captain Kirk is a little bit of a womanizer. I think that reputation is kind of earned, but but that's another discussion for another time. Well, I mean, it's a weapon in his arsenal I would definitely agree with, but... I think uh, the idea that that's, you know, he's a first captain is kind of not what I, what doesn't always square up with with the popular consensus, I don't think. But um, well, yeah. we can agree to disagree. I'm interested, Mark, how did you come to Star Trek? What drew you in? Do you remember the first time you saw it? Um, I now this I remember uh, uh, clearly. I was five years old. Uh, the episode was Devil in the Dark. I was over at my mother's friend's house and her daughter had put it on. Hmm. And, and I, I just was, was uh, uh, really excited about it. And um, yeah, I just I was watching it after that. It was on constant reruns on the local uh, independent station for the entirety of my childhood. <laughs> I really like asking this question. Yeah, Ryan, what about, what about you? I don't have a... <laughs> I don't have a specific memory once again, but I don't I don't have a specific memory of what grabbed me about the show. My mom tells this story to everyone that I've been I've I've been watching Star Trek pretty much since I was two, and that whenever those first few bars of Alexander Courage's uh, iconic theme would play, if I were in another room, I would come running in and demand that my parents not change the channel. So I've been watching it for a long time, you know, past the point where I would have conscious memory of it. 
So it's just been something that's been part of the fabric of my life and being for so long. I don't even, um, I can't imagine it never being there. It's weird to think if you subtract Star Trek from our lives, what, <laughs> how different they might be. It's true. I'd, I'd have been beaten up a lot less. <laughs> <laughs> I got very lucky in that regard. I'm sure there are people who wanted to beat me up, but it never, it never came to bear. Um, Maybe you're not a tiny Jew. <laughs> tiny, but not the second part. No. So, <laughs> Regrettable. Uh, so I thought for the 57th anniversary of Star Trek, it debuted September 8th, 1966, which is this week, later this week, that I thought for the 57th anniversary, we do the 57th episode. That just so happens to be the original series, third season episode, the Enterprise Incident. Um I had wanted to do a lot of like season two episodes for our season two. It just didn't work out. Just thought 57, 57. And one of the reasons why I wanted you both to be on for this one in particular, it's actually the main reason was that you had just had a, uh, you know, you, you, you're into the slash fic side of Star <laughs> Trek. And I feel like this episode is a, is a part of that canon in some way, because it's like two lovers or you know spot kirk and spock are conning this poor romulan commander <laughs> into thinking that she's got a shot when spock's clearly in love with kirk or you know whatever but anyway it's the enterprise <laughs> it's the enterprise incident written by the late great dc fontana directed by john meredith lucas it aired on nbc september 27th 1968 memory alpha synopsis Acting apparently restless and irrational, Captain Kirk inexplicably orders the Enterprise into Romulan space where the ship is quickly captured by the enemy and Kirk held captive aboard their flagship. But it's all an elaborate ruse for Kirk and Spock to trick the Romulans so that Starfleet can get its hands on their new, more perfect cloaking device. In order to get the ship back home, Spock must seduce a very interested Romulan commander played by the late Joanne Linville. She's willing to risk it all for our favorite Vulcan. <laughs> um do you do you, either of you remember the first time you saw this episode? Did you see it like early in syndication or? I don't have a specific memory of when I first watched this episode, only that it was really on a lot uh, when I was a kid. I, I grew up here down in San Diego and Channel 8 just showed the showed the original on the weekends back to back with Mission Impossible. And it always seemed that they showed only third season episodes. This is because that's my biggest memory of as a child was seeing all those episodes. And this was just one of those that just came up all the time. This and the empath. I remember just watching ad nauseum uh, as a child down here in San Diego. You must have been a very focused child to make it through the empath multiple <laughs> I times. <love> that episode. <laughs> I, maybe that's why I love that episode because I was able to sit through it. <laughs> I don't think it's like a bad episode. I'm just like, as a child, I could, I, I tried to watch it when I was like a teenager and I had a tough time, but as an adult, it's not, yeah. not as hard, but yeah. Um, it, it's intense. Mm -hmm. uh, what about you, Mark? I have no idea when I saw <laughs> this episode first. Uh, certainly it was before I was 10 years old. Um, I can tell you that that uh, watching it for for this show, this may have been the first time I saw it in HD. Hmm. So I may have picked up on a few more things that I, I hadn't seen all the other times, all the other many times. <laughs> Interesting. 
So the first time I saw this episode, it was uh, I lived in Northern California, not the Bay Area, an important distinction people from the Bay Area like to remind me of. But right in between San Francisco and Sacramento. So I was in this weird spot where I could get the Sacramento stations, which had Star Trek on it at a certain time. And then I had the San Francisco station where I could get Star Trek on at a certain time. And one was playing exclusively like the next generation. And then I could only really get the original series in the San Francisco one. I remember very clearly watching this episode like through static, like literally balancing myself to get the uh, antenna ears to keep the channel fuzzy enough that I could kind of see it and hear it. And this episode was like, what the hell's going on? (laughs) It was like right after I got into Star Trek, it was, you know, I had basically only seen the 10 best episodes, which fans decided were seasons one and two episodes. So seeing like a season three episode very early, like as the 15th episode of Star Trek I'd ever seen was really bizarre. It's a wild season to just be dropped into. If you don't, if you have just a little bit of Star Trek, it sounds a little bit different. It looks a little bit different. Um, and it, and it, to this, it took me until maybe a few years ago to actually sit and watch this thing through. It just seems so melodramatic and broad and all that stuff. And now I can see why it's generally considered to be maybe the best episode of season three, uh, because it, it actually kind of fits of a kind with the previous two seasons. It must have been wild for people to see in first run. Oh, I for mean, sure. Yeah. Spock kills Kirk. Yeah. Halfway through the episode. <laughs> yeah. You were having a spat that week on the ship. And That's Spock right. was like, he doesn't put the toothpaste cap back on. I'm done with him. <laughs> the Vulcan death grip. And that was actually the first time I heard. This episode is kind of weird in that I think it is in the pop culture consciousness more than people might realize. Like the Vulcan death grip was the first way I heard the nerve pinch explained like it was referred to me as the death grip and that, you know, it's obviously BS. Uh, One of the big parts of this episode that I feel compelled to talk about is Joanne Linville's performance as the Romulan commander. She passed away in 2021 at the age of 93. She had a 55 year career, long IMDb credit. She got her start in 1959 on the guiding light. uh, And she was a runaway drug addict whose daughter was nearly taken from her as part of an illegal adoption scam ring. What a soap storyline. Congrats. <laughs> um, and in 2011, she basically, if you've seen the show Barry, she turned into um, Henry Winkler's character. <laughs> she turned into an acting teacher. And and in 2011, she wrote and published a book called Joanne Linville's Seven Steps to an Acting Craft. There's a YouTube interview with her online. And I, I was enjoying it. And then there's just a moment where she has a chance to uh, critique Al Pacino's acting and she takes it. And I thought it was fantastic. So encourage everyone to uh, find that uh, the Romulan commander though, doesn't get a name. It gets whispered in Spock's ear. Uh, it's treated as this big re- uh, reveal, a woman <laughs> command. Uh, so I, I might be stepping on one of our later grades here, but certainly uh, it stands out as she's definitely one of the most uh powerful women that had had been in Star Trek up to that point. And, you know, I thought it was a pretty lovely performance. I'll get into that a little bit later. But I feel like that is the biggest standout part of this episode. The the thing about the Romulans having Klingon ships is maybe number two. But I'd be interested to hear any general thoughts you might have had about the Romulan commander. Yeah, I love Joanna Linville. I think she's great. She she's in a great episode of Columbo the case of the candidate or something like that. 
where she she's she's driven to drink by her ambitious and philandering husband, played by Perry White from the Superman movies, Jackie <laughs> Cooper. Oh, so wow. A, yeah. And <laughs> she doesn't wear a bra at all throughout that entire episode. And wherever they were filming was very cold. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, uh, fun fact, her daughter, Amy Rydell, cosplayed as the Romulan commander at STLV one year. There are pictures online. She looks exactly like Linville looked. Yeah, it was uncanny. Yeah. She, She was also 40 at the time of the filming of the episode. That seems noteworthy is uh, effectively a middle-aged woman. Uh, although for her, credit to her, not middle-aged yet. Uh, but- hey, I'm 47. <laughs> I'm not middle-aged. <laughs> it was, I would say in a lot of ways, this kind of was a sort of a bold thing of not putting Spock with an obvious sex pot kind of uh, like we'd had in the first season or so uh, for the show that they really got someone that kind of created a character yeah, the fact that she's not, um, you know, a young pinup like most of the other women that were uh, brought in as, as uh, uh, love objects for uh, Kirk in previous episodes is, uh, is pretty interesting. And, and I kind of feel like, you know, Spock was really thought of as sexy at the time. And I wonder if there's some wish fulfillment uh, for the women who were watching that, like, they have a chance with Spock. I think that's a component that sometimes is overlooked. He was very popular because women were attracted to him. Yeah. I, Isaac Asimov wrote an essay for a TV guide about how steamy Spock is. <laughs> oh. And as we saw in Oppenheimer, the movie physicists, man, they can get it. Uh, so <laughs> science, a certain degree of scientist can uh, really, really make the women I, you know, as a as a dark haired person myself. It was just nice to see brunettes empowered uh, and actually getting some action as opposed to just like your your first in line, blonde hair, blue eyed that most TV casting tends to drift towards. So that was nice uh, from an objectification standpoint only. But any specific thoughts about this episode? You might have a stray thought that doesn't fit into any of our grades that you might want to mention before we get going. Yeah, I think this episode for me affirms my belief that all Starfleet Academy graduates are theater kids. (laughs) Like, seriously, no, seriously. Like, I'm with you. (laughs) Kirk and Spock really get into their roles here, conning this you know, poor Romulan commander who's just doing her job protecting the border. And now I just kind of want this like noises off style tale of cadet Kirk and cadet Spock's attempt to put on like an ill-fated production of much ado about nothing. And Spock has to take over for the actress playing Beatrice, causing him much stress because he has to play against Kirk's Benedict and be his romantic interest. There's yeah, I, for the moment, <laughs> I'm with you. I think that the acting part of being a Starfleet officer is one I hope Starfleet Academy that show gets into. But it's like a level, a dynamic that we've seen. You know, it's Kirk and Spock have to calm the crew as well because they have to like make it a real that Kirk is losing it uh, enough that Doctor McCoy creates a log entry that supports it. Uh, and that it's just the two of them, you know, in their quarters, probably strategizing uh, to to keep the rest of the crew off their scent that there's that they're playing this up in some way. 
Uh, I totally agree. It's they, they absolutely probably thought it was just another spat between the two. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading up on this episode and um, Dorothy Fontana really wasn't happy with the way that it turned out. As far as I understand, it was originally supposed to be a male Romulan commander and all of this romance stuff was not a part of it. And I wonder how much of her is in that final script. That's interesting because it's a pretty well-written script for the most part, I think. Um, So that's a interesting thought experiment. I do have some thoughts on it because I was thinking the same thing that this is certainly one of the better episodes of the third season. Um, uh, Whatever magic that DC Fontana had in the original draft has survived to what aired. Uh, You know, the... The characters in this episode are the closest in the third season that they ever get to how they were in the first two seasons. And in fact, Gene Roddenberry wrote a memo to Fried Friedberger and Arthur Signer, you know, saying, hey, you don't really get the characters. Here's how the characters function in a Star Trek story. And this is how best to utilize them. Um, So, you know, I... You know, I get, I, and I think also this was the episode where DC Da Fontana decided she wasn't going to write for this, for 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 Friedberg Star Trek any further. Um, but I may be wrong, and someone will, cor- a friend of our Mark and I will correct me if I'm wrong after he listens she, to this. She might have had one or two episodes afterward, or yeah. one other that she used a pen name because of how much it got changed. Yeah, she she, she didn't wasn't want her name very happy. It. Yeah, she was she wasn't happy with Fred. But that also brings me to another thing. If the Romulan commander was male, would Spock have flirted with him? I kind of think so. He's a dedicated <laughs> method actor. I'm pretty sure him and Jim were in his cabin rehearsing for the eventual <laughs> encounter. <laughs> uh, this is one of the rare times in Star Trek history where the, the script is a story that's basically ripped from the headlines. Uh, the USS Pueblo incident, which had happened near North Korea, an American uh, naval spy vessel, which claimed it wasn't at the time, but was captured by North Korean forces. And this was in January of 68. And two months later, she had the first draft of the script written. Obviously, it goes a lot differently than how history does. But I can't really think of many times. I mean, we just did The Expanse, which was uh, certainly influenced, inspired by 9-11. But that was pretty, you know, it was probably the next time, but there's been very few instances in Star Trek history where they're taking something that actually happened and futurizing it. Sometimes it's just like a concept or, you know, something that's in the consciousness, uh, an idea, uh, you know, that they address in some science fiction way, but rarely is it like a piece of news or history. It's a shame. I've only seen like three episodes of enterprise. <laughs> if you're a completionist, I mean, at some point you might have to get in there and check it out, but uh, I don't know. It's it's dealer's choice. So their, listen their, to our... their 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 version of nine eleven is is it's it's safe in the way they handle it as, as opposed to how the new Battlestar Galactica handled the same themes. Literally a year later. Literally <laughs> like, a, year yeah, later, a year later, someone else did it better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this episode and maybe Star Trek Six are probably the two that are really ripped from the headlines in terms yeah. of Star Trek. Yeah. Now, maybe the two of you have better information than I do on this, but the Klingons are the Romulans using Klingon design for their ships 
I heard was because they lost the model for the Balance of Terror uh, Warbird. And so this is how they got around that. Instead of spending the money to build a new one, they just used the Klingon model that they had. Uh, as far as I know, uh, Waming Chang, who built it and designed and built a lot of the creatures in the first season of the original series, he was not paid for that model. And oh, so he just he took found it. Out, yeah. yeah. Hmm. When, they, when he found out that he was not going to get paid for it, um, because he was kind of working under the table, he just smashed it. No, oh. and Good that has him. been a prevailing story that I've heard. Well, That's a better the, story. <laughs> yeah, the other one that is you know more common or more of a production uh, reasoning is they had just built the Klingon cruiser for Alana Troyes, so they'd spent all this money to build this Klingon ship that we've only seen once. So you kind of want to get you want to get more you want to get your the bang for your buck. So let's reuse it in another episode, even though it's Romulans and we can come up with some BS reason for for it being Romulans now. I feel like the last two theories or both of your facts are correct. That's what knowing the business, they both feel true. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Holly, Hollywood, if it can, will screw you from getting paid. In the deadly years, we didn't get any new footage of that model. So it was all oh, yeah. from yeah. of terror. Yep. I don't know if either of you knew this, but season three, the budget was slashed. We knew we all knew that. Mm-hmm. But their shooting schedule for one episode was six days. That is insane. That is nuts. I don't know. I mean, obviously, that's why the end of the season, you can see it leaking oil and just yeah, like so, spring shoot now. People are losing their minds. <laughs> and, and, and one thing I want to reiterate, and, and, and once again, Mark and I have a friend, Maurice, and Fact Trek will correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I believe this is it. Uh, um, is that what happened was NBC did not cut the budget, it was Paramount who cut their contribution to the budget once they bought Desilu. And so that's where you get like them trying to like, <laughs> you know, uh, shoot an episode in six days to save money. Well, you can see uh, some of the, the budget cuts in this one, as far as um, like the briefing room, it's, you can tell that the walls are not lit anymore. They're painted green. Hmm. Uh, on the other hand though, the when transporter you get to the Romulan too, ship, purple. yeah, on the other hand, when you get to the Romulan ship, the lighting is actually pretty impressive. There's silhouettes and shapes all over the place. Um, so they picked and choose where they wanted to put their money for sure. Right. All right, let's do the grades then. We'll start with great scenes. Uh, I'll just get us started here. I think the first great scene, and please disagree if you want, but I think the first great scene is after Kirk and Spock have beamed aboard the Romulan ship and they meet the Romulan commander for the first time. It's basically a six minute scene. It starts with her turning around in the chair and it's the audience supposed to be like, oh my gosh, a woman. And and she says, Captain Kirk. And then Kirk immediately tries to charm her, which is a point in Mark's favor that he's like, all right, here we go. A woman, I can charm her. And she's not buying it at all. She's like, I don't think so. It's a really nice scene where she excuses Spock and then she talks to Kirk, gets his crazy half-cocked story of a statement on the record, then brings Spock back in. Spock refutes it. Uh, and it ends with Kirk being held back, screaming at Spock, I'll kill you! So to me, that's a pretty great scene all in all. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I agree. You know, she has her little 
you know, James Bond villain moment where she turns in that, you know, very fabulous designer chair. Um, and, and it ends with that like betrayal of Spock to Kirk. It's, it is, a, it is a very great scene. I don't think you could have a scene that goes six minutes in TV today like that, but <laughs> it's a great scene. For a six day shoot, you know, I caught it. You know, she checks for her mark three times. This is a very big thing I, I tend to do, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you've got a, you got some tricky blocking coming around the table, hitting your, your marks. Uh, so there was that. I also just thought her scene, she kind of starts the scene off kind of hot. But it's, you know, when you're playing against Shatner, who is playing Kirk as someone who's losing it, it's it's kind of makes a lot of sense that it's very pitched. But I actually like once Spock comes back into the room, you know, the temptation is she's supposed to show she's attracted to him. But that that's when her performance really locks in. So it's like once Spock comes back, it's like she really settles in. And it's like, that's what is the episode. But I just, my head's spinning at the idea that they have six days to shoot these episodes and they have a six minute scene. They probably had what? They had to do this, what, two or three times at most. So uh, credit to everyone for pulling it off. My great scene pick would be a subset of that. And that's when she's alone with Kirk and specifically talking to him. And he is just flummoxed by her. She's cool as a cucumber. She's got a comeback for everything that he says. And I know he's supposed to be crazy, and I know that he's not supposed to be at the top of his game, but it's still like he's trying to shout her down, and she just logics him into submission. And I think it's fantastic. I think she does such a great job. And it's kind of, it's a little bit nice to see somebody bring Kirk down a peg. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I lo- any scene with with Roman Commander and Spock is just it's electric boogie woogie. It's just oozing sex. You know? Yeah. Like the dialogue is just so thirsty. <laughs> yeah. There, to, in my mind or my notes, I wrote down there are three seduction scenes effectively between the commander and Spock. The first one is where she goes, wait, you're a Vulcan serving among humans or you're you're human and Vulcan, so where's your loyalty? And when he says Vulcan, she's like, well, you're like more advanced and stronger than all these humans. Why don't you have a ship of your own? And Spock kind of starts, he has to play into this, right? And she's like, you know, if you were with me, you could have a ship of your own. The Federation is not the whole universe. And Spock, as part of the ruse, uh, says, that thought has occasionally occurred to me. It's an interesting beat because I feel like this um, construct has been transported across Star Trek. A lot of this episode actually feels like it's been recycled quite a lot throughout Star Trek. So, you know, the idea that you're superior, so why don't you take over? I feel like Worf has had this conversation. Data has had this conversation. Uh, you know, I feel like it's just come up at different times where the villain or the antagonist points out, hey, you're better than all these people. Why are you friends with them? You know, that kind of thing. But... <laughs> I thought it was a good scene, even though it has some exposition built in. I thought it really worked. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, it's it's also interesting where Spock is like, yeah, these opportunities are few and far between for somebody like me. Mm, that's true. I didn't think I about think, that. I think the alienness of Spock is, I mean, there's a lot of alien going on in this, and I think I'll, I'll touch on this more later. But um, but Spock certainly, as an alien is you know at the forefront of this and his sense of alienation among these crew that he's around and so yeah that's the that's the way that i took it is that 
there's not opportunities for someone like him in this fleet of humans, mostly. Yeah. Well, when you think about it, too, there's the extra layer that even when he's home, he's an alien still because they won't accept him because he's not full Vulcan. Right. Yeah. He has no he is he is everywhere and nowhere at the same time as a character. The uh, second seduction him uh, uh, a place to belong, truly, without question. She even asks him, are you human or are you Vulcan? Yeah. Yeah, I the, I think if there's one episode or part of the episode that d- not doesn't fall down, that maybe another crack at this or another day of shooting is that we get inside the Vulcanness a little bit more. But I can like her trying to get into that a little bit more because she just expresses some fascination and appreciation. But and like, hell, we got some Vulcan food for you. But also it does feel like they've covered it a lot. So maybe maybe that's totally wrong. But it does seem very one-sided. And that's why it's like, it is a ruse. And it doesn't take very long to... it. One of DC Fontana's criticisms is like, this all seems kind of obvious. And, it, and, and one of those things is where it's like Spock's just listening, which I'm sure for men in the 60s was also like a revolutionary idea. Just ask her <laughs> questions and listen to her. <laughs> like, make, you know, seem like you care. Uh, the other great scene I had was the second seduction scene. This one, I, I definitely need you both to answer a question for me. So it's when they come out after they've heard that Kirk's tried to kill himself or get out of the cell and he's injured, they're walking in the hallway and she does something that every Star Trek villain or James Bond villain does where, you know, invites him to dinner, you know, all that stuff. And when they get to the end of the hallway, Spock turns left and it's a pink hued corridor with a door. The door has two flaps on either side of it. And she says, that corridor is forbidden to all but loyal Romulans. Gentlemen, is she talking about her vagina? Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I don't think I can answer that. Well, um, even though Gene Roddenberry wasn't involved in the day-to-day <laughs> operations, this still was very much a Gene Roddenberry production through and through. <laughs> The entire tone of the scene as they're walking down the hallway is like, uh, you will dine with me tonight. No, I'm sorry. Let me say I'm inviting you. And Spock's saying like, that would be great. But do your guards have to be there? And she dismisses her guards. And when they get to the end, it's the normal hallway. But then there's the red hallway. (laughs) You know, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe it it, maybe it is because this like I said, this episode oozes sex right there's never the act of sex there's never the directness of sex everything is indirect but also totally overt at the same time yeah so it just uh struck me maybe it was the hd mark it's just uh (laughs) so crystal clear that i was like oh there we go uh the next great scene i have is the vulcan death grip scene i mean we get the vulcan death grip we have Kirk acting, William Shatner acting as Kirk out of his mind, um, which was funny. Uh, And then uh, the seduction scene number three is where uh, Spock pretends to shoot his shot for the Romulan commander. And this is where the, she goes, you know, I do have a first name. And he says, I was beginning to wonder. And she says, well, would you like to hear it? She whispers it in his ear and he says, how rare and how beautiful, but so incongruous when spoken by a soldier. 
And she says, if you will give me a moment, the soldier will transform herself into a woman. And then she comes back in a pretty cool dress. I got to be honest. But <laughs> then she later skulks the hallways. In. Yeah, yes. And uh, then we get the Vulcan hand sex scene, which was the Romulan Vulcan hand sex moment, which I thought was great. And then the last it great scene I had. I wonder if, um, you know, DC Fontana had more to do with it than we think, because she came up with the whole Vulcans show affection through hands thing in Journey to Babel. And, um, you know, speaking of Spurk again, one of the complaints that a lot of people have about Strange New Worlds is how, and and Ryan and I have about Strange New Worlds, is how sort of boringly human Vulcan sex has turned into, whereas it used to be very alien and very interesting before. You know, now they just kiss and roll around with each other. Before, there was a strange eroticism to it. Yeah, I mean, you know, we went from Journey to, to Babel where it was finger kissing, basically, right? And here it's taken a bit further with Spock fingering. Wait, that's, I shouldn't say it that way. See, if I can talk <laughs> about the corridor, you can say fingering, it's fine. <laughs> but there's a lot of fingering in this episode. Yeah. Sorry, children. <laughs> <laughs> we have an explicit tag. They ought to know. Oh, okay, good, 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 good. <laughs> I don't need letters from moms. <laughs> I do have a note about DC Fontana's involvement with that scene later on. So you're you're right on, Mark. Although not quite in the way that you think. It'll be a surprise. I'll leave it at All that, right. I guess. Um, and then the last great scene that I had, and you, again, you can disagree and tell me why, but the last scene between Spock and the Romulan commander after they beamed aboard the Enterprise, she pulls a, uh, you know, she pulls a Star Trek four and jumps on him on Spock as he's being beamed away. And Spock says, you know, if I had actually turned, you wouldn't have respected me is the bottom line. And she goes, it'll be our secret. Cause you know, he's right. I just thought it was a nice, lovely little moment. I, the, the logistics of her stopping him from escorting her the rest of the way to the quarters, notwithstanding, because, you know, that's a security risk. But um, <laughs> just the drama of the moment, it was a nice capper to the episode. Something I feel like uh, now, 55, 57 years on, uh, this is also, I, I don't know if I mentioned this, it's also the 55th anniversary of this episode this year. Um, but, you know, it's so rare, it feels like for these even sometimes silly or slightly immature episodes emotional aspects or storylines to have a somewhat adult capper to them and it felt like you know they're they're combatants but they're also uh they're interested in each other and now they're parting their ways and it just it was pretty cool it was chill i liked it so any other great scenes did i get everything i feel like i got everything there's there's definitely an adult eroticism to this episode that i think is missing in so much other star trek have you ever had a relationship like this with a cold warrior enemy? I I haven't, but but I I can see that it's it's more serious than a lot of the the love connections that we've seen in later series, and and I uh, I, I take it more seriously than other ones that I've seen in in later series. Yeah, no, I, you said the keyword mark, and that's interesting, and I feel like that's something that is missing. And I don't know that that's me being a, a, a prick about my definition of, in, of interesting. I think it's the idea of what is something we can do. That's not obvious. It's kind of a starting point for that. Right. And um, yeah, the way say Spock and T'Pring uh, have sex, you know, engage in their sexuality seems very much like 
feels very much like we want to make Star Trek feel sexy to modern audiences. And this is what, and so why not reflect the way people engage with each other today? That's just an example. It's a canon departure, but it's also like a, you have a chance to do something interesting and a decision to not do that because you want to be cool. And I think that's what's missing. Well, well, to be fair, uh, you know, bringing the empathy back, as you mentioned earlier, Uh, I'll allow it. Uh, (laughs) I'll allow it. Uh, But DC Fontana did write a Star Trek novel, Vulcan's Glory, where she does explicitly state that the Pond Far cycle is a reproductive cycle, like, you know, a monthly period, but Vulcans have sex outside of that period uh, in her book. So just to be fair about the T'Pring Spock thing, although it does feel very 2023 TV and less 1968 science fiction television yeah i think that's what uh, my misunderstanding you mark that's what you were getting at right like just the way like she slaps her her hands on his broad shoulders and then they go to town on the bed like just it looks like they behave as though um that as people good looking people in 2023 do not like vulcans having sex yeah they 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 have sex like human beings yeah there's there's nothing alien about what they're doing there's nothing uh, uh, interesting about what they're doing. It's just very human. A- and we've lost all of that bizarre eroticism because I-, I don't think that there was anything toned down about what we saw. There was panting and grunting and touching and licking of lips and, and things like that. But it was alien. I mean, I think that if I'd seen that scene in 2023, I would have been just as interested if I had seen it in, in 1969. It was interesting to me. I was completely like, what's going on here? You know what I mean? Like, and, and the, the key is the actors are selling it. They really are believing they're present in the moment and they're believing what they're doing. There's no suggestion of wink, wink meta, like, Oh, we're doing this now kind of thing, which Star Trek or no, I think modern media can be guilty of that from time to time. It's not like a Star Trek thing, but it's like it's people get giggly for some reason. And it's like this one, they're just being like, here's the reality. We're creating it. So yeah. uh, best Trek tropes, uh, cheap production. In this case, recycling the Klingon ships to be the Romulan ships uh, for whatever reason, whatever the reason we've decided it is, uh, redressing the enterprise corridors is the Romulan corridors. The cloaking device is a combination of nomad from the changeling and one of the orbs from return to tomorrow. I just, I don't know. I think that's a good trick trope when they recycle the, uh, they recycle familiar things. It's a, it's adjustment money saver. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, no, I think I, I, I like that Star Trek reuses things makes the universe there's a common design language to the universe of star trek um that sometimes gets it gets away from when you get more money right because you don't have to recycle as much right but i kind of like that at least in the original series i felt like everything existed in the same universe even if it was an alien whatever yeah uh any trek tropes that you either of you want to throw out I would say running into a wall of energy that you can't see. <laughs> oh, yes. 
So that that would be that would be Kirk hitting the <laughs> the energy barrier in the Romulan brig, and then <laughs> which he backwards. knows is there. He knows it's there. Well, he's got to. He's playing he's a part, acting. right? Yeah, he's, he's got to. Yep, he's acting. Yeah, he probably well, it's probably knows how to pull his punch too. He's like, I know how to get just close enough where it does the little shimmer, but then I don't get the full force. <laughs> That's a good one. I like that. Uh, Ryan, um, do you have one? Uh, you know, Mark already mentioned one of mine. Uh, where I I also agree with Mark that I think this is the best Trek has done with the female antagonist seduction trope. Usually, it's in the reverse, right? It's Kirk putting the moves on the female antagonist, right? Um, but in here, we have the Romulan commander uh, wanting to do it with Spock. So, uh, you know, I like uh, that. To me, is is the best use of that trope. And then also we have a great character death fake out. So that's, that's, oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, now I'm curious. Now I'm insanely curious to know what aspects of this did they plan for and which did they not? Because they didn't know that the Romulan commander was going to be a woman. Did they know that? No. And then once the seduction happens, that's all, that's all freestyling. That's all yeah. not in the plan. Interesting. So yeah, well, where's Spock getting also, all that from? <laughs> Spock, Spock's also an improv kid. That's so right. yes, and he can go with it. Now, I got to imagine back in the 60s, especially at the height of the show, Leonard Nimoy, I'm sure that both of both he and Shatner were in still situations where they were flirting with people. Leonard Nimoy's charm seems very obvious, even when he's hiding it behind Spock, which is why Spock works so well. You've got a charismatic person uh, able to shield it in such a way. Uh, and so when, when he's like on his side and they're just, and she's whispering in his ear, I'm like, I feel like Leonard Nimoy has been in that situation before. Or like <laughs> he went to like some event, he like, he's having drinks afterward and some co-ed he's just like sitting with on the pillows and they're talking. Uh, I feel like he was in that moment before. Spock's uh, sexuality and his sort of being is kind of almost like um, there's a scene in um, Oliver Stone's The Doors, where Jim Morrison is getting photographed, and he's sort of this wild cat who's aloof and running around the room while this woman is trying to take pictures of him and trying to get at him and trying to take advantage of him. And that's Spock. <laughs> Spock is like this cat, this feminine thing with his uh, uh, beautiful eyeshadow and his sassiness, and, and he's aloof. And he's intellectual, and he doesn't really care what you're thinking. And I think that that makes him desirable. He's also the finest first officer in the fleet. I mean, what's not to love? <laughs> well, Kirk, Kirk, Kirk Bennett more like he is the finest <laughs> first officer in the fleet. Oh, my goodness. It's all there. It's in it, the text, everyone. The <laughs> queer subtext has been there since the beginning. Whether or not they were aware they were putting it in is another question. <laughs> so a few more before I get to the DC Fontana connection to the the, the fingering. Uh, Kirk, <laughs> for best Trek tropes, Kirk says to Scotty about the uncertain beaming coordinates, just don't put me inside a bulkhead. I feel like this line has been used across all the series now at some point that that's a fear yeah. uh teching the tech at the end i know it's happened previous to this episode in the original series but i guess because it's like a season three thing and there's 
a, a slight chinsiness to everything in season three. Just the idea, the music, it's like Scotty's got to get this thing installed. He even says, I'm working as fast as I can. You know, it's just that that last trope of like, he's got to, you got to do the solve, the tech solve at the end. And then I really like as a Trek trope, the Romulan, everyone following rules so stringently that a bad actor is able to take advantage of it. You know, the Romulan commander allows Spock to make the Romulan right of statement, which gives Scotty, Spock knows Spock, uh, Scotty's going to need 15 to 20 minutes to install that cloaking device. He's got to buy his crew some time. So he, he, he invokes this. That's part of their plan that he and Kirk were cooking up. And then when we steal it, and if one of it's captured, we need to buy ourselves 20 minutes. Here's how we could do that. Uh, but I just like the idea that her she's heartbroken. This is the, the worst possible outcome of the situation that they find themselves in. And she's still like, yes, now is the time to conduct this administrative process. Because I, <laughs> I really need to kill you. I really want to kill you so badly. I'm willing to do the paperwork right now to do it. <laughs> Rom- Romulans are a dystopic bureaucracy. <laughs> Okay, and then, Mark, here is the best Trek trope that I have, which is only really a Trek trope for the original series. After that, it gets annoying. But being aware of fan reaction when writing the story. Uh, In the past, I think that was used to make the episodes better. Now, I'm not so sure, like keeping the fans in mind when you write something, because a lot of interviews for the new people, it's like they go, oh, the fans will love this. Like we knew when we wrote this, the fans would love this. But in the past, in this case, Dorothy Fontana uh, saying uh, in the original draft that got changed, her stuff was rewritten, that instead of them doing the finger stuff, Spock is raining kisses on every square inch above the shoulder of the Romulan commander. But Nimoy and Linville agreed that they needed something different from normal human love ex- expressions. This is from Memory Alpha. And suggested the, ha- the hand contact instead. Nimoy, in fact, wrote a long letter of complaint to Gene Roddenberry about this issue. In the book Star Trek Lives, Dorothy Fontana tells how she attempted to warn Roddenberry about fan reactions if Spock were to behave out of character. So she saw that memo and she said, yes, this is right. They have it right. Alien, it's alien sexu- sexuality. It's not human passion. But then this is the part that really reminds you that Star Trek fans, it's our God-given right to complain about the show. Even though they did that, DC Fontana was flooded with letters from fans complaining because they thought Ponfar meant once every seven years Vulcans have sex. And as you said, Ryan, she then went and wrote Vulcan's Glory where she's like, no, they can fuck whenever they want. They can finger whenever yes. they want. <laughs> They can eat a nice meal and then go have sex afterward and get interrupted by their boss. Um, like every, like everyone in the 21st century does. Uh, all right. Worst I don't pick up tra- the phone when my boss calls, by the way, when I'm in mid coitus. So. Yes. And then, and then call him by his first name. Anyway, yeah, I, uh, I have another best uh, trick has a type, if you have room. Oh, go for it. Yes. Uh, blue drinks and square glasses. And, and dyed melon melons. Yeah, the, uh, yeah. <laughs> the the desire to put things that are alien to us on screen, uh, like round uh, uh, playing cards, which, you know, were bought off the shelf, of course, but still weird stuff. Like they're trying to put the weirdest, most out there things that are not usual to uh, modern people on the screen. And, and square glasses, I think, is one of those things that popped up a lot on the show. Yeah, they even call the Romulans, don't call it the bridge, they call it Command Central. You know what I mean? Like they did try to 
at every possibility, you know, maximize that we're in a different reality or the future with aliens here. Uh, Worst Trek tropes, the villain giving the ship time to wiggle out of its predicament. We give you one of your hours. (laughs) You know, sometimes it works and it's just fine. Like, uh, like the Corbomite maneuver. Uh, And sometimes it doesn't. This to me is one of those times. This is a pretty clear treaty violation. Like, why are you giving them a chance to figure it out? It should be a pretty easy reaction to the violation. Anyway, any uh, worst Trek tropes for either of you? Scotty bitching at the end. <laughs> it's like, dude, just do your, just do your, yeah. do your freaking job, dude. Stop <laughs> bitching. You'd think if they had done the full five years, like by year five, like Scotty, stop it. We know that you're just like backdoor complimenting yeah. yourself right now. Just yeah. we, we, you're fine. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's like Kirk is like, you know, between you and bones, I don't know who's the biggest whiner on the ship. <laughs> Uh, I had, it's a good trope for drama, but uh, Subcommander Tall says it'll take three weeks for a message to reach, reach Starfleet from the Romulan neutral zone. That seems like bad military strategy. If any one message takes three weeks to get to command from a very strategic point. So I get why it's there. It's for dramatic purposes, but the stretching of time and how fast it takes things. I mean, obviously Star Trek's always done that. In this case, it was just weird. It was like a weird bump. It's like, what? Three weeks. That's weird. Um, And I don't know if it's a worse Trek trope, but the villain or the guest are inviting one of our main characters to dinner, even though it leads to the hallway. Only loyal Romulans get to go down that corridor moment. Uh, But it's just another, you know, it's it's just like, why are we dragging this out? The, The villain has the hero right where they want him. And in the Star Trek tradition, it's not a slow laser beam heading up towards James Bond's crotch. It's let's have dinner first and and talk about our our differences real quick. No, Mr. Spock, I expect you to die. (laughs) Exactly right. (laughs) Uh, Most of its time quality, as much as the music of Star Trek is classic, I'm going to say the score this time around. Uh, Alexander Courage returned to compose the music for this episode. I mean, dun, 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 is is iconic. It sticks in your head. But also compared to the music from the previous seasons, it sounded like they had one or two instruments available and they were recorded with a really shitty mic. It was like mixed weird. It sounded kind of empty. It didn't sound quite as good as the music before. But this episode and Plato's Stepchildren were the only two episodes that Courage came back to score some music for in season three. Um, I think the the romantic stuff with between uh, the commander and Spock might have been new as well. And that was OK. That, that was a good theme. The do 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 do. I think that might have been new, too. And that was fine. But yeah, I think it was a, I would think it was very uh, um, alien again with the alien stuff. But it, yeah. it was very alien uh, romance music. It wasn't your typical. Uh, rolling in the sand kind of uh, yes. uh, crescendos. It was <laughs> it was fitting of who they were and what they were doing. Yeah, the dun 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 sounded very much like '60s action adventure basic <laughs> stuff, though. Uh, so along those lines, kind of everybody's hair, even though they did at least in this episode have the pointed, you know, they did have the pointed sideburns at the bottom, but they were still very long sideburns. Uh, and this episode was filmed in 1968. But sort of their hairstyles and the look of it, it made me think, did the 70s actually start in 1968? Is that what, is that a what happened? A little bit. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. when the style started shifting. If you look at like 
the suits, like Mad Men's a great example of this, right? You can see that their suits are like these very like, you know, tailored affairs and then slowly but surely the, you know, the, the, the lapel gets wider, you know, Roger's got longer hair and a mustache. So yeah, it's kind of like the late sixties. It started to get into that era of uh, just uh, shaggy hair. Yeah. One of the things that I noted was that the, uh, the Romulan who stops Kirk in the cloaking device room, he looked a lot like Mike Nesbitt and um, you know, that you, you think about the monkeys they were in, in the late sixties and that's when they started growing out their mutton chops and, and getting their wild hair and stuff like that. So definitely by 1968, you, you get those long sideburns that, that all the Romulans had. Yeah. And then just for a time, I'm going to combine these two, just the treatment of women, even though the Romulan commander is powerful, powerful, formidable, just the idea of like, that's the reveal. It's a woman. You know, that's and then also it's very apparent now. I mean, it was always apparent, but especially in this episode, just Uhura, the the relegation of her down to hailing frequencies open or this Uh, or that. It's like it's such a bummer because Nichelle Nichols, you can just see that's a star right there. And she's just sitting there just kind of doing communication stuff. It was a bummer. Oh, oh, totally. And, you know, as Mark knows, and you probably know from the podcast, Uhura is one of my top three characters that I always wish got more to do because Nichelle is so charming in the first season when she's away from the bridge in the rec room, when she's teasing Spock, there's so much potential in what she could have given to the show, but was not allowed to do. And, you know, I have no, I don't like Chekhov. And the fact is now as I'm older, I feel like Chekhov takes away from her time. So doubly, yeah. I don't like him. Like she should have been on that mission in Star Trek Three. What the hell was Chekhov doing on that mission? Uh, just that kind of sh- stuff like that just drives me nuts. Um, anyway, I was annoyed that Sulu wasn't in the captain's chair like he was in the first season. Yeah, and Ohura in Balance of Terror gets to sit in the navigator's spot, and then and not never again. We get one time. Oh, would have been great. Now it's time for the line must be drawn here. Great lines. Scotty, if the Enterprise is taken by the Romulans, they'll know everything there is to know about a starship. Uh, I think that's just an elegant way of saying what nowadays would probably be like, they'll have access to our intelligence and our schematics. It's just, that's a very good line. This is famous. Is this the first time it's ever said in television? I don't know. Dismissed, Dr. McCoy. I said dismissed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Subcommander Tall to Kirk after offering up a hostage in exchange. Uh, he says, and Kirk's doubting Subcommander Tall's uh, intentions. And Tall says, granted, we do not easily trust each other, Captain, but you are the ones who violated our territory. Should not be we who distrust your motives. Um, just, you know, sometimes you forget that you can write, you can have great writing for all the characters. It's possible. <laughs> uh, Romulan Commander. Then there is a truth here that remains unspoken. I liked her. I think I liked her acting more on that line more than anything else, but that was a good line. Uh, we have not even begun. <laughs> she slams her hand on the table. Uh, I wonder if she broke something when she slammed her hand down because she looked right down on it. Or maybe she was checking her mark again. I'm not sure. Uh, any lines that you guys want to throw in here? Because I, I have like six more. So <laughs> it's a very quotable episode. Your Your language has always been most difficult for me, Captain, which I think really 
again tries to sell the alienness of this situation right um and that you know this is these are not humans i really like spock's line as you can see captain kirk is a highly sensitive and emotional person which <laughs> which is what he loves about him yeah exactly that's what drove him yes yeah, that's 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 great <laughs> uh to the alien this point what i really liked in that scene was coming into it going like she knows what she has a pretty good idea of what's going on here or you know she doesn't believe anything kirk saying from the first line so her saying that uh, that particular line about some of the words is just another way to me. My interpretation was that she's just, I'm aware of your bullshit, but I'm going to be polite with you. And like, she's just going to try to like dull him, dull all of his potential angles that he could play on her. Right. Um, but uh, to, to your point, it still qualifies to remind us like, yes, this is an alien on alien situation. Any other that ones? And, and other, yeah. other lines like you humans make a, bu- a brave noise. Yes. <laughs> I do love the commander's line. We have other inducements. Yes. I'm like, girl, you're thirsty <laughs> as hell. <laughs> um, when Kirk loses his mind, uh, this is so it's Scotty's line first. This is Lieutenant Commander Scott. The Enterprise takes no orders except those of Captain Kirk, and we will stay right here until he returns. And if you make any attempt to board or commandeer the Enterprise, it will be blown to bits along with as many of you as of many of you as we can take with us. And then there's a couple of other lines. And then Kirk said, oh, that's when you get the humans make a brave noise. There are ways to convince you of your errors. But Kirk's line, he's telling Spock he's a traitor and a coward and all that stuff. He's like, did you hear the sound of human integrity? <laughs> I just thought that was a great line. Uh, the inducement line is fantastic because that's in the same scene where Spock says, he's basically like she's like you'll take command of the enterprise and we'll go back to romulan space with you in command and he's like uh an hour from now would do even better would it not commander spock's literally saying yeah i need about an hour for us to really get to get down then we can uh, then we can go do what you suggest i thought that was great (laughs) uh when some commander uh tall hears that there's an alien signal aboard ship it's the way he says the line. I must have the source. <laughs> that was great. And then my last great line was Spock saying to the Romulan commander at the end, military secrets are the most fleeting of all. I hope you and I have exchanged something more permanent. I thought that was a great line. And my recollection of season three is it's rarely that elegant the rest of the way. <laughs> um, the Anton Caridian Award for Best Performance. Is there any dispute that it should be Joanne Linville, or do we have another? No, no, that's none, my, that none is whatsoever. My, yeah, yeah, none, none. I love uh, her thirsty Romulan commander. <laughs> she's powerful. She's whimsical. She's sexy, and she's vulnerable. Yes. You know, when Spock asks, "What's your current method of execution?" She's devastated. This woman is running every gamut of emotion in this episode and it's just it's a joy to see she's great now he might come up in the next one but i just want to point out in the anton caridian here that shatner plays plays kirk as unhinged for the first 25 minutes but when he's revived in sickbay he's captain kirk again and i just want to point out that when you're doing network television sometimes you can have performance drift and you can just forget that you're in character I just want to point out that Shatner, the professional, 
because I'm still in character. I'm still acting. Well, you know, so I don't think he should deserve. I don't think he deserves the award. Just pointing it out. There, there well, was a change. <laughs> I'm going to talk a little bit more about the performance in the next one, but uh, there's this interview with Shatner where his approach to acting is a little different than Nimoy's. Nimoy's is very much a method actor, right? Uh, where Shatner is, I live in the moments. And when you're doing something, I think it was for the Roddenberry Volts is where the interview is. When you're doing things out of order, an actor has no choice but to live in the moments. So you can only play the moments because I don't have foreknowledge, right? The character doesn't have foreknowledge of what's going to happen mm-hmm. two scenes later, right? Mm-hmm. He has to play it in the moment. And I think he's really, he get, he doesn't get enough credit as an actor for being able to pull that off and be very naturalistic and charming at the same time. All that said, we agree that William Shatner gets the Shatner. Oh yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's playing emotionally compromised Kirk. I mean, even for Kirk, he's what we call in the Philippines, OA, uh, overacting, uh, (laughs) you know, like, like, dude, even Shatner doesn't act this bad. <laughs> his I'll kill you and his uh despondent like his his body language in the in the holding cell when McCoy's treating him like he's really like strung out in the in this moment but yeah he's definitely he has to sell this performance you know yeah. Starfleet uh, acting kids He's got to make his troop proud. Really yeah, well, also, also, I want to point out, um, it's not even just the outburst scenes. When they go to the brig, uh, when Spock and, and the Roman commander go to the brig and, and Kirk is with McCoy, he looks physically depressed. The expression on his face, it's so sullen and he's so hunched over. That is, that's just... It's 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 subtle and it's there, but it's 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 it it you, you don't notice it because there's all the you know yelling and screaming and you know charging at Spock that happens around it. And uh, younger listeners, you have to understand that he's sometimes playing really big, or he looks ridiculous. His eyes are wide and all that stuff. They're playing for a much smaller screen. They didn't have screens that big uh, back in 1968. And the resolution was what it was, you know, it was murky, you know, everything's by antenna, it's over the air. So he's playing big to make sure that people can understand what's going on. And uh, 24 inches was a luxury. Yeah. So the fact that it plays even today, even though it plays bigger, the fact that it still fits within the frame of the reality created is just a testament all the way across to everybody making the show. So, but yeah, he really went for it. He really goes for it. Go ahead, Mark. I really think an honorable mention should be given to Tao because for the for the kind of nothing part that he has of a guy just sort of sitting behind a desk and talking into a screen, he really kind of chews things up. You know, like like you said before, he must know the source. He's <laughs> he's doing a good job and I, I wanna I wanna give him some recognition there. I, I'm yeah. with I'm with you. I also follow, I think, Sub Commander Tall on Twitter. So Yes, we uh, all do. He's a great guy. He's a great guy. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I think 
uh, at least Ryan and I, we might know what part of this will they teach at Starfleet Academy? You know, espionage acting. So- yeah, and that's what I was going to say. It's like, you know, they have a very strong theater program that trains all these midshipmen or cadets to really put on a show if they have to. I mean, think about it. All the starship captains are so great at giving these moving speeches at the drop of a phaser. (laughs) They have to be trained. (laughs) Mark, any, uh, what do you think they'll be teaching here? I think, I think the whole thing really, I mean, it's a perfect espionage plan specifically ordered by Starfleet that went off without a hitch. So how could you not teach everything that happened here? But I'd say the standout thing is Romulans are horny for Vulcans. Who knew? <laughs> that's that's got to be really useful. I hear it's the ears. I, I don't know. Do you think they're like Romulan dudes who like fetishize Vulcan women then? Or like with American men oh, who fetishize oh, you know, certain races? Well, I'm going <laughs> to probably cultures. say, yeah, it's probably very common in a Roddenberry-backed universe. <laughs> The the new humans and the new Romulans and the yeah. new Romulans. Are, yeah. <laughs> she was making all kinds of, of assumptions about Vulcans herself, right? You guys can't lie. You're all very honorable. And he was, you know, going right back at her. Cleverness is, is beneath you. Uh, so there was a, there was a little bit of reductionism there on the, on behalf of everybody, but I think it's warranted because it's two people on, on either sides of a border who don't know anything but stereotypes, right? As opposed to people who are actually living with each other. Right. I also love that. She says Vulcans can't lie. And he lies right to her face. Amazing. (laughs) Absolutely amazing. The the greatest, the greatest lie Vulcans ever told (laughs) was fooling everyone and thinking that they never lie. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, it's ridiculous because there are plenty of logical reasons to lie. Yes, yes. exactly. There's right. a logical reason for everything if you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> Could this episode have been uh, hornier and would that have made it better? This is our new grade that we're trying out this season. This is probably the worst <laughs> episode to try it on because it's incredibly horny. And I don't know how much hornier it could possibly get. I do. Okay. Uh, probably in this era of broadcasting standards, you could only turn it up so much, but... Why did Spock change into something sexier, more of a <laughs> man? I mean, Harry Chess Nimoy is always a sexy time. <laughs> I, I could certainly see that. William Ware Tice would have been willing to design that for him. <laughs> and and I think uh, Ryan and I have talked about this lots of times. One thing that both Tice and and Roddenberry had in common was their willingness to objectify men as much as women. As bad as Star Trek can be for women, at least the men oftentimes can be as as sexualized. Uh, I, I mean, he made Shatner shave his his chest, so <laughs> he wanted yeah. he wanted everyone to be a sexual object of desire on his show. Uh, you think about the Trojan battle shorts. Yes, <laughs> cheerleader Troy. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> So, okay, so you think the episode could have been hornier. Would that have made it better? Or do you think this episode is horny enough and that makes it good enough? Or if you turn up the volume on the horniness, is the episode still as good as it is or does it make it better? Well, Harry Chess Nimoy would make everything Make it better. better. Yeah, would make it better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm right. in complete agreement. I think that that's, I think that that would be my line. 
I think that's. I think you're right. I, I don't really need to see any any kind of pushing and grunting on the part of the actors to uh, to sell the uh, the eroticism of it. I agree. In that moment with the whispering, if if there was uh, if he was wearing something less, that would have been. You know, we we don't know what they're actually wearing under those uh, uniform tunics. He could have taken it off. It's not a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> or she could have had him searched. You know, and then it's like, where did where did he keep the communicator? Then that would have been interesting. Anyway, <laughs> she likes to watch when people get searched. There we go. All right, so then that leads us to our final question: Trek, marry or kill the Enterprise incident? And I will kick it to Mark first. Uh, I'm gonna marry that girl. Marry her right. anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, um, let let me say, I would. I would marry this and make an honest episode out of this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't like to disagree with my guests, but I also think that I'm going to go with the late great Dorothy Fontana here. I had a chance to meet her and I didn't take it up, take the opportunity and I kick myself every day. But she said, overall, it was not a bad episode, but I did have a lot of complaints about it and things that weren't approached or handled right. Let's face it, the romantic scene between the Romulan commander and Spock was totally out of context. Any Romulan worth her salt would have instantly suspected Spock because they are related races. That was wrong. Kirk's attitudes were wrong. A simple thing, the cloaking device was supposed to be a very small thing about the size of a watch, for instance, and it could be easily hidden. Here, it's Kirk running around with this thing that looks like a lamp. You know, highly visible. This is stupidity as well as a logical thinking. And she goes on and on and on there. So I would say that that's a trek. But since you are both a Mary, that means that this goes in as in the canon. It's a, a Mary for the Enterprise incident. I'd say the biggest fault with this episode is that she jumps on Spock when he's beaming away. Why? I'll never be able to figure that out. Why does she allow herself to be captured? Mark, she'll never find a man like Spock ever again. Well, she's got to grab him while she can. She's I a forty-one-year-old spinster. She, she needs to take yeah. what she can get. It's either hang out with Sub Commander Tall on Friday nights or Spock, and I think she's with Spock. Well, she's tired of Sub Commander Tall when he gets drunk and he starts, you know, talking about his ex-girlfriends <laughs> right. or, or knowing the source. All right, uh, so I saw that uh, that ship full of jerks is on a hiatus, but you'll be coming back pretty soon for your second season, right? Uh, yes, we're we're taking a bit of a break. We've done 24 episodes, which just astounds me. We have literally done a season of old school television. Uh, but yeah, we're taking a, a, we'll be back in mid-September, right around when Lower Deck starts up again. Check out Trek Comic as well. Don't forget that. Star Trek, the web comic. I really enjoy it. Uh, and don't forget to rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts or right there in your Spotify app. Give us five stars if you're so inclined. Uh, next week... Kristen will be back and we will be discussing We'll Always Have Paris from season one of TNG. It's an episode where Jean-Luc Picard is visited by Michelle Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas. Uh, don't forget also to check out TrekMaryKillPod.com, which has all of our standings. All right. So until next week, TMK out.